0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of With You In Mind. My name is Lisa Upton, the founder of BrainBuddy, and I'm going to be your podcast host. Before I get started and introduce you to today's special guest, I'd like to give a big shout out to the National Brain Appeal. They're the supporting charity for the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery and the sponsors of With You In Mind. If you haven't heard of them, then please do check them out at www.nationalbrainappeal.org. The work they do is absolutely incredible in helping raise vital funds for brain research, not to mention loads of other exciting stuff too. Right, let's cue that jingle and get today's episode started. In this episode, I'm joined by special guest, Chris Hallett-Wells. Chris is a patient at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And in early 2023, he took the very, very brave decision to have brain surgery to remove a DNT, which was located in his right temporal lobe. This was, of course, the cause of his complex and partial epileptic seizures for many, many years. And during our chat, Chris shares with you his extraordinary journey of brain surgery, what led him to make the very brave decision, his experience of brain surgery, and of course, his recovery so far. Now, it was a real pleasure to interview Chris. He's an amazing guy. He's got a lot of wisdom that he will share with you. And um, I think the cherry on the cake is that he's got a really, really wonderful voice that will immediately make you feel very calm and very relaxed. So enjoy it welcome chris thank you for joining us on the with you in mind podcast it's fabulous to have you here um i know we only had you on the the live show um in london a few weeks ago now and we received a lot of great feedback so it's fantastic to get this opportunity to just extract your wisdom around your journey so that we can share it with um a lot more people so welcome
1: thank you very much for inviting me
0: how are you doing today
1: I'm I'm doing great every day. I seem to be feeling a bit better at the moment. So, because
0: it's not been too long, has it? Just remind us of the date of your surgery again.
1: Twenty eighth of January this year, twenty twenty
0: three. Yeah, I can't believe it's this year. To be honest, like when you were on stage doing the live talk, I was like, wow, I'm not sure I could have done that. Like eight nine months after my op. So kudos to you.
1: <laughs> well, it was interesting. You asked me to send some some photographs for that. Uh, And then I hadn't looked at the photographs of me um, from the day I had the surgery um, until then. And then uh, there was one of me having the, the, when I had the stitches taken out. And then um, six months later on holiday with my son and I looked a lot better, I think.
0: (laughs) I mean, I thought you looked all right anyway, but yeah, they're great photographs. And I can't remember where you were on top of some big mountain, weren't you, at the On that photo with your son at the end.
1: Yeah, it was, was, I don't think it would classify as a big mountain. It was uh, (laughs) Little Adam's Peak, it's called.
0: Wow, pretty uh, impressive for saying you're only a few months after surgery, nevertheless. So Chris, obviously I know your story. Um, I've interviewed you before, but for the purpose, um, for the sake of the listeners that are going to hear this podcast, can you just take us right back to beginning in terms of when the epilepsy first presented itself in your life?
1: Okay. It was about, um, uh, 2008, uh, I had, I, one morning I woke up in A&E in the Royal Free Hospital. Um, I had no idea, you know, how I'd ended up there. Um, and I had just had, um, uh, a seizure, generalized seizure, um, the first one I'd ever had. And, um, my wife had called an ambulance uh, to take me to a hospital and I had no recollection of, uh, of it at all. It turned out um, after I was diagnosed that I probably had having, been having seizures for a long time. Um, the type of epilepsy I had was uh, temporal lobe epilepsy and that has um, some uh, fairly um, standard. Um, or typical, um, or presents in a fairly typical way, and I was having creepy deja vu.
0: Oh yeah, you mentioned this creepy deja vu. Talk us through that. What was that like?
1: Um, it was actually quite debilitating when it really hit you. Uh, I was—I can remember going on holiday with um, some friends, and I just stayed in bed because it was—it was just very, very strange. It was a very strange um, experience. And then as it carried on, um, it wasn't very exciting um, in that I would just see you walking past someone and then suddenly they would look like someone I thought I'd seen before, but um, it was something felt very, very strange and it was quite an intense feeling. And then it would uh, would go away. Um, So after I had, my first seizure um i saw um a neurologist and as soon as i said the words creepy deja vu he he just said well this is what you've got and then the mris i had were really to confirm that right uh, which they did um fairly soon uh i um i was uh I was referred to, um, professor, uh, John Duncan at, uh, Queens square. Um, and he sent me off to the, um, to the national center for epilepsy in yeah. Chalfont. where right, they yeah. he said they have the, the most advanced, uh, MRI machine in the UK, or it was at that time. Um, and they found this very small, um, a tumour on my right temporal lobe. Um, and that um, that was my introduction to epilepsy. Wow. Uh, I can remember actually after, after we spoke, uh, it suddenly started to come back to me that after I went to Chalfont, I received a letter saying that they had found a... Um, tumor which was called a, a DNT. And I took the letter with me to work and I opened it at work and just seeing in in black and white the word you know, brain and tumor mm. in the same sentence. It was it was really very shocking. It subsequently turned out that a DNT is not a malignant tumor. But I didn't know that when I first saw the letter.
0: No, of and course.
1: It, it was really hard to, to to. How do you tell someone that you've got a brain tumor? You, my my first thought was this is. I thought brain tumors were terminal.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that would be most people's thoughts. But as we know, many of them are benign, and they, you know, they they present themselves well through through epilepsy as a bit of a manifestation. But it must have been a shock, mm-hmm. and and I can imagine all of the emotions that went with that did you did you tell your family immediately or they've been through the process with you up until this point
1: I told my, my my wife had been involved fully involved up to that point but then I had to go home that evening and I can't remember if I gave her the letter or, or told her uh, she was at work um, so I just certainly didn't tell her at work um another thing <laughs> I remember I I, I bought a a booklet, a book, and started to, to write messages to my children, Mm. um, for if I wasn't there in the Mm. future, didn't write very many, (laughs) I, I very quickly, I got another appointment with, um, uh, professor Duncan, and then he explained what a DNT was and how it was, um, it was benign. It was just very unfortunately placed. And was causing these problems, um, which was you know, very reassuring. I quickly, um, quickly accepted the fact that you know he's a, he's a man that's very easy to trust.
0: Yeah, he is, isn't
1: he? He told me it wasn't um, malignant, um, and you know, I believed him.
0: Yeah, but it sounds like there was a period of time from receiving the letter seeing Professor Duncan, where I can only imagine you must have been absolutely petrified.
1: Absolutely. Um, I was, um, I was working in a law firm at the time on the marketing, and I remember having to, to tell people, (laughs) actually I wrote an email to my immediate boss saying, am I don't know how to, I don't, I can't believe I'm, I'm writing this, but, um, I've got a brain tumour and I, I don't think you can rely on me to, to finish these projects. Mm.
0: Um, Goodness. And, right. um,
1: and it's, it's quite, it, it very quickly spread around the, the office. Um, so that was, you know, not a, it was, it's a surreal experience.
0: Mm, I can imagine. Was there a part of you that I suppose felt relieved in knowing that these weird creepy auras and the big seizure that you'd had were because of a, a reason and, and that was the brain tumor?
1: Um, Professor Duncan explained um, that, the, um, that the, a DNT in my case, it was a more of a lesion although it may have an injury a scratch something that, but something i'd had you know, probably all my life rather than um as a result of banging my head although i had had a, <laughs> had had uh, quite a large bump at, uh, at some point on my head when i fell off a bicycle um and he explained that it was like um i'm going to get the phrase wrong but a whole load of, of neurons nerve endings that were in a bundle and um and suddenly they came live right when i was when i was in my late 30s and it was just a just a thing couldn't have been predicted but it came live caused those problems
0: so they did they think the dnt was something that you'd always had from birth potentially it just came live at that age by chance chance wow okay
1: yeah
0: and I suppose some people perhaps have these DNTs and never know about it if, it if it doesn't present its way through epilepsy or anything like that.
1: Well, if I if I just carried on having these um, these um, periods of uh, déjà vu, I wonder if I would ever have even mm. gone to the doctor about them.
0: Yeah. Was there ever any part of you when you were having these weird, creepy deja vus, which I suppose the clinical name is Auras, isn't it, as we know now, or Petty Mound, as they're sometimes referred to, was there any part of you that thought, this is odd? like, what is this, I don't know, sense of familiarity I keep having? Or was it just really hard to explain to anyone?
1: Um, I think I just got on with it, and then it went away, and I forgot about it. Right. Just, um, you know, just put it to the back of my mind. Mm. Uh, and it was just periodic, it happened now and again. So it was quite easy to ignore.
0: And was there any physical symptoms that came with it, like a sense of tiredness after you had the the, the auras, anything like that? Or purely just a moment of time where you felt that sense of creepiness, familiarity?
1: I did... A, um, I wasn't aware of it until I was diagnosed, but when, um, when I had an aura, there was various different, different types. And I would get a little bit tired after an aura. I was also having minor um, um, seizures, uh, which are more, you know, more serious, where there was a visible manifestation of mm. them. And I would feel very, very tired after those um I was, again sometimes I wouldn't be aware that I was I was having those mm. um and um there's <laughs> the name for them is um unaware seizures is that right yeah yeah
0: that's uh, there's yeah.
1: aware and unaware seizures yeah and I I was unaware that I was having unaware seizures mm-hmm. um until I was at a at a friend's house And we were talking, I was, I was talking. And then I suddenly felt really, really tired. Right. So I had to to go home. And the next day I saw my friend and he said that I'd been talking. And then suddenly I went quiet and I was stroking my face, pulling my face. And then two minutes later, I just carried on from where I'd been, just carried on talking. And that was the moment I realized I was having unaware seizures. Mm. Um, And yeah, I don't know how often uh, or how long I've been having them for.
0: Goodness. How soon after having your um, grand mal seizure, your tonic-clonic seizure did the the clinicians put you on medication and what medication was that?
1: it was uh within within a, a week a couple of weeks um initially i went on on tegratol and i was i was told that uh, that was the it was an old drug uh but that meant that they knew um they really understood the side effects of it um and i was on i was on that for for quite a while until uh until I saw Professor Duncan. I think after I'd been diagnosed with a with a DNT, and I found it very hard to function on tegretol. Right. Um, it made me sleepy. Uh, uh, I was also I was quite unbalanced. I can right. remember at work walking down this corridor uh, and bumping into door frames. Uh, which, uh, you know, if, if I'd seen someone else doing that, I'd have thought they were drunk. After I saw Professor Duncan. He, um, he moved me on to um, lamotrigine. Oh, yeah. And that worked um, immediately. It was much better. It was, I felt that I could function um, better. My thinking was clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on quite a low dose. Um, and something that um, was, um, was perhaps interesting uh, I was getting the um, Glaxo Smith Klein brand of. Oh, yeah. Lamostrum is called Lamictal. Yeah. And then at some point, my GP um, changed it to a generic brand. Mm. And it didn't, something went wrong. I mean, I, I, and um, I felt that it wasn't working as well. And um, I spoke to a friend who's a GP. And she said that these anti drugs, they're one of the very few where you can request to stay on brand because it does, it can have a difference.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I went back onto the the branded version mm. and it did. It did. I didn't immediately notice a change. Yeah. Um, it's I wasn't definitely worried, a it was thing. quite a lot more expensive yeah. for the NHS, but it did make a difference for me and allowed me to, to, to function.
0: Yeah yeah it's really interesting that point you make we've heard that a lot from patients and i myself too experienced that with a change of brand so great that you're raising the awareness around the fact that it is one of the you know the, the group of medicines i suppose that you can request to stay on brand um important for people i think to keep a diary uh maybe in that instance where they're, they're switching brands and things so tegratol lamotrigine did you try anything else or was it just those two
1: um I took lamotrigine for um, several years, um, but then um, gradually it stopped working for me, and the the dose was creeping up until I was taking uh, quite a lot. And Professor Duncan suggested that I should try something else. Sorry, I can't. I can't. No, that's that's okay. That's one of the great things about <laughs> my, my, my memory is still, uh, it'll come back to me in, in, uh, suddenly at some point.
0: Okay, that's fine. So you tried a third drug, but any, any side effects to, to that one?
1: Um, that was, uh, I had some uh, uh, immediate unpleasant side effects and it didn't work for me. And the, the side effect was um, I would wake up with a very dry mouth in the right. morning uh, to the point where I had to peel my tongue off the roof of my mouth it'd be stuck to the roof of my mouth
0: goodness me so
1: bizarre
0: the effects that these medications can have on you
1: yeah and another thing because you're you, you need saliva to um, protect your teeth so mm. then my gut started to uh to pull away from my teeth Gosh. so uh, um i came off um that medication mm. and went back to the motrogen right um, but again, over time, um, it I started that the, the seizure started to to come back, auras mm. fairly regularly, and then um, uh, occasional um, tonic-clonic seizures, right. uh, and the, the the dosage crept up over the years, and. And, and as you increase the dosage, the, the, these anti-electric drugs work, as it was explained to me, they just dull down all electrical activity in your brain. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really experienced that when I forgot to take my drugs in the morning. Right. And then coming in the afternoon, I'd feel so much brighter.
0: I bet, yeah.
1: <laughs> and things like, oh, that's what it does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there was... Um, I felt there was a a balance that was, I could I live with a certain number of seizures and take less drugs or did Mm -hmm. I have to take enough drugs, dampen the seizures completely, but then have very, very slow thinking. Mm. So Um, that was
0: sort of the, the, I suppose the, the question you asked yourself, was it when you were presented with the opportunity to have surgery?
1: Yes, because, um, and Professor Duncan explained that um, every time you have a seizure, you're losing a lot of, um, of neurons that aren't going to come back. Um, so, you know, you did, I did need to control the seizures, uh, even if that meant increasing the the dose of lamotrigine uh, to a point where um, I otherwise wouldn't want to have got to. But then um, a few years ago, um, the um, I still used to have the um, say one tonic-clonic seizure a year about, and then I started having a lot of auras, and um, and minor minor seizures, and uh, I saw Professor Duncan, and he had years ago, right? Possibly the first time I saw him, talk through all the different uh, options and said they liked like to start with, um, with medication. And we had a conversation about surgery and I, I very clearly remember him saying that, uh, that as I got older, the benefits or the risks of surgery would increase. Um, but to balance that, uh, the, um, the, the techniques were improving. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so um you know if I waited a few years the uh, medical advances would um may off- offset the disadvantages um but several years a few years ago um we reached the point where I couldn't take any more memotrogen I was taking the maximum safe dose right. um I tried at that point three different medications and the percentage uh the chance of a, of another medication working were very small and at which point i was told that surgery was my my best option
0: well wow. um, so when you first heard that you know potentially the option of having brain surgery what what sort of goes through your mind when you when you hear that
1: i was really fed up at, at that point I was taking a lot of medication which um, was making it very hard to to function I thought and I was still having seizures so um you know I, I wanted to do something else and um Professor Duncan was was very clear in his uh as he talked me through um, the benefits and uh, and disadvantages or disbenefits of the risks of having surgery and one thing he said was that there was a the, the, <laughs> there was a risk in doing nothing mm. and every two years I was running um, the same risk of something serious happening if I didn't have surgery as if I did have surgery so when I heard that, it was, just seemed um, it seemed no a brainer. bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think having it all laid out like that, and they do it so well, don't they? The neurologists and the surgeons—they they present it in a way that it, it's well, what we've just said, a, a no-brainer. Yeah. So, did you get the opportunity to meet the surgeons before um, they, they perform the surgery on you?
1: Well, this was this was actually during COVID. Right. So, um, I, um, I spoke to them over the telephone before I spoke to the surgeons. Um, I had to speak to a clinical psychologist who went over the, the, um, the risks that, um, professor Duncan had talked about, um, and in particular, the, um, the sort of psychological yeah. impact, um, that you, you, there was, um, a long a longish list of of um, psychological problems that you can have post surgery and i was given the the choice do i want to proceed and Um, yes yes, i did so then i had a um, a telephone conversation with uh, dr anna miserocci um and again she went through through the risks taught me through it and at the end did I want to proceed and yes I did um, again this was during COVID and the next step was to have um, um an investigation to see if uh this DMT was causing my epilepsy and that took about um that took a long time to get the appointment because you go into, into hospital for about a week
0: I think. Mm. So this is for the telemetry where they sort of video record you hopefully having a seizure so they can almost pinpoint it
1: accurately. Yes. <laughs> um, which was great. i'm <laughs> I uh you know, I sat in sat in the bed for a week, read books, watched T V, someone cooked my dinner.
0: Did they manage to capture um, anything while you were there?
1: They did. Um, I had a, a button to press if I thought I was having a seizure and, um, I, I didn't press it very often. I didn't feel that I was having a seizure and they, they explained to me that, um, that, that can be quite common because people are so relaxed when they're away from the normal, uh, life pressures that if your seizures are triggered by stress and tiredness, in hospital. Yeah. <laughs> You're stressed or tired. <laughs> so it doesn't happen. But they did they did record seizures whilst I was asleep, which was actually quite a, a relief because you know it proved to me that I wasn't making it up. Mm. Mm. So that was actually you know, someone saying, Yes, we've captured you having a seizure. Great.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. So you had the telemetry. They confirmed that yes, you were having seizures. Um, what happened next?
1: Um, nothing. <laughs> um, there was a a long wait of um of, for about a couple of years. The hospitals were closed for um for, for uh, this the type of surgery I was having because they were using. They were using the theatres for COVID patients. I'd I'd made a decision that um, I wasn't going to have the surgery uh, whilst my children were doing their GCSEs and A levels and the run up to those. I thought it was it was unfair. They need to do, be able to concentrate on what they were doing without um, without the worry of me. Mm. And um, so I'd, I'd made that. Uh, I, I discussed that um, with the um, with the psychologist, and okay. she said that was quite common. I remember her, her saying that uh, a lot of teachers will schedule their operations for the summer holidays for that reason. Yeah. So um, uh, I decided I couldn't have my operation at the earliest until um, September twenty. 20- okay um if that um if it was available at that time
0: okay so not too long after that you got the date yeah.
1: well I I suddenly realized um this sounds a bit stupid but I suddenly realized I um that this might be covered under private healthcare, which mm. I had and um I googled and Miserocchi, private practice, and it popped up that she uh, performed this surgery at at a new clinic, the Cleveland Clinic in in London, which is next to um, the the back of um, Buckingham Palace's garden. Nice. So I um, I messaged her and asked if it would be possible to have the surgery privately, and the answer came back yes. And after that, um, it happened very quickly. Um, I got the go ahead, and then uh, there's there's agreeing it with your insurance company.
0: Do you have a decent window of being able to plan for the for the build up to the surgery?
1: I think I I think I um, I think I knew I could have the surgery uh, in September. And then there was a process of sorting out with the insurance company and that was quite quick, but then finding a a time which, um, the doctors performed the surgery privately, which Mm. was uh, on a Tuesday. And then also I didn't want to have it over Christmas. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) You know, I wanted to have a good Christmas with my, with my family. Um, And then this is ridiculous. I had tickets for a comedy show, (laughs) <laughs> in mid-January, and I wanted to go to that as well. <laughs> Fair enough, <again>. So, <laughs> So um, I found a date that worked for me and it was available and booked it. It was all, it was just all very matter of fact. I'd made the decision to have the surgery. I was happy with that. I thought it was the only way forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So got it in the diary just work towards that
0: amazing and so it sounds like the decision to have surgery was very firm in your mind and something that you really wanted to to go ahead with how were your family with your decision was it a decision you discussed with them or was it more of a this is what I want to do hopefully I've got your support kind of thing
1: my wife has been incredibly supportive uh the whole time and uh, she was involved in, in the decision. Um, we talked about it, but in the end it was, it was my decision. Um, but also, um, I was advised to talk to my kids who were 15, 17 at the time. Um, when I decided to go forward and that was really helpful as well. Um, originally I thought I was, I was, um, I was talking to them to help them, but actually it really helped me make the decision when I told them the advice i had been given and they were saying, oh, yes, you must have this. Really? And I also said I wasn't going to have the surgery around the time they were taking, or before they were having their exams. And they said, oh, no, you should get, just get on and do it straight away. Amazing. Yeah.
0: so they were fully behind yeah. you. your wife was obviously very supportive, so in that respect it, it it sounds like it was a yeah a relatively straightforward process, like you said
1: yes, i I didn't think I had an alternative. yeah, it was a decision I've never I'd never questioned, never had any uh, doubts about having having decided what I was going to do i was I was happy with that decision and stuck to it.
0: Was there any other members of your family or friends that you engaged with about it, or was it just your immediate family
1: um I talked to my sister about it she's um she's um a nurse and I've got a very good relationship with her you know we, we still tease each other like we were teenagers mm-hmm. and she was she was very helpful uh she was good to talk to um um but i decided i decided myself i wasn't going to i wasn't going to tell my mother no. uh she's uh, she's in her 80s and i thought it would upset her and also i didn't want to have to deal with her being upset um and my sister said that was a good idea as well uh but i did tell i did tell friends not many yeah but the very close very close friends i I told
0: Mm.
1: again i didn't want to have to deal with other people's questions
0: yeah yeah we've all got our own way haven't we of navigating this and and like you say it's it's a lot to go through (laughs) yourself let alone you know having to manage other people's emotions and and questions if they're not part of your immediate family so yeah it's whatever works for you Mm. So talk to us about the lead up to surgery. I mean, like the day before, the days before, how was that for you? And what did you do to prepare yourself for that?
1: In the weeks leading up to surgery, um, I had um, another appointment with uh, Dr. Mizoroshi to talk through um, what the surgery would entail. And she went over the wrists again and then... um, maybe two days before the surgery. I had another appointment uh, with, um, with Dr. Mizoroshi and Professor McAvoy, who'd be, they both would be performing the surgery. And again, they, um, they consented me, they went through the risks to make it very clear what I was, um, what, I was, um, what I should expect, what were the risks that I was taking. And they said that if I needed to back out, up to up to having the anesthetic I could uh but I was quite surprised something they said that some people do very recently they'd had someone who just suddenly at the last minute changed their mind which seemed very unfair to me that uh, you've got this 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 team of highly qualified mm. people and and they're all ready to go and they can't fill that that slot at the last minute, Um, which maybe that just helped firm, made me think about, was this something I wanted to go ahead with? And yes, I absolutely did. Um, And then I think the, the day before I went into hospital for the surgery, so two days before the surgery, I had to go in for an MRI. Um, so I got to know my way around the hospital a little bit and, um, and then the, the day of the surgery, I can remember it was very important for me just to take myself there. I just wanted to get up, go in by myself and, and that's, that's what I did.
0: So you made the journey from home in London. Uh, did you take the tube to the hospital on your own?
1: I got the tube. Um, got the tube to to Green Park and walked across Green Park um to to the, the hospital I wanted to see a bit of uh, a bit of greenery before mm. before I went in mm. um and for me that was the right decision because uh I no one was around me to to get upset and I could just deal with it the way I needed to deal with it just inside my head just coming to terms coming to terms with, with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important. And again, everyone's really different, aren't they? But having that time to be introspective and just have that, I don't know, time on your own to, to really lean into what it is you're about to embark on. I think is hugely important for, for anyone, really. Absolutely. So you arrived at the hospital
1: arrived at the hospital i um i did the admin um the in forms um putting on a a gown <laughs> <laughs> into bed <laughs> and um i remember my my wife came in to see me that evening and she spent uh, a couple of hours with me um and then she had to go home to to get on with things and I had no trouble falling asleep. I just, you know, I wasn't worried. Um, fell asleep, woke up in the morning. Um, I think My wife had arrived early. They came in and did whatever checks they need to do. And then said goodbye to Lucille and then wheeled down to theatre.
0: Mm. was there ever a part of you on the way down to theatre because I remember that journey so so well that thought am I doing the right thing or were you hell-bent on doing this
1: I was I was totally committed to to having it to that point um I just wanted to get on with it yeah Um, I'd had enough of um of the restrictions i'd had to give up so many things i enjoyed doing um cycling swimming and i'd missed i realized i'd missed so many events uh, because i was feeling ill i was too tired and i just had enough of that so i was i was totally ready to to have the surgery i was i'd thought it through in my head um just get on with it
0: and your motivation I and
1: confidence, yeah. confidence in the doctors I see. which helps <laughs>
0: of course it sounds very much like your motivation was to ultimately get your life back I guess
1: yes and so, as I should say as that having met um, uh, Dr Mizoroshi, Ms Mizoroshi and uh, Professor McAvoy at Queen Square you, I really did feel that I was, I was going to get the best treatment that was available in the UK. And if you're getting the best treatment in the UK, you're, you're probably getting the best that's available anywhere. Mm. So I was very, um, confident that I had a very competent team of, of doctors looking after me.
0: Amazing. So you get into theater. What happens next?
1: Um, A bit hazy at that point, I mean, they must have given me an anaesthetic. And um, straight out. Um, I was, hold on, go back. Um, I was, I met the surgeons that morning and they consented me again.
0: Yeah, they like to do (laughs) that, don't they?
1: (laughs) I was given a a last, last chance to back out. and then I was taken down to theatre, given an anaesthetic. And the next thing I know, I was coming to. Um, do,
0: you, do you remember how long your surgery took?
1: It was eight hours uh, for two surgeons uh, <laughs> inside my head. Uh, um, I, I'm one of the things, um, uh the surgeons had told me was that where the tumor was in my in my brain it was very small um but it was quite deep and they until they got into my brain they wouldn't know how easy it was to get to that tumor to remove it mm. and um uh one of the issues is that you to me I imagine my brain's a bit like a cauliflower made up of of bits and uh Dr Mizoroshi said these, these bits can be some sometimes they're sticky sometimes they come apart um and um she she said they would need to go through my hippocampus to just to make space to get to um to get to the tumour and how much they would need to take out would depend on how sticky my brain was, how, how easy it, it came apart. Jumping forwards a bit, mm. <laughs> one of the, uh, the first, first meeting I had with Dr. Mizirochi after which he told me I had a very unsticky brain mm. and it'd come apart very easily. And, uh, they hadn't need to take part, hadn't needed to remove any of my hippocampus at all.
0: Amazing. So
1: they'd just been able to target this one, one small small piece I was quite I was very lucky that um in the um the hospital I went to because at the time it was the only hospital in the UK doing neurosurgery where they had an MRI next to the theater so they would do the operation and then before they closed they would um uh, take you into the MRI still um still anaesthetised, mm. and do a scan to see if they'd got everything and at um, some point, they they noticed that there was something else there, so they they took that out as well. That was um, uh, like a, a cavity in my skull, and the brain was poking into that, bulging oh, into it, and that can cause a problem as well. So they they removed that. So it was a slightly longer and more complicated surgery, um, but from their perspective, not not very.
0: So you woke up eight hours later having had your surgery?
1: <laughs> it was very strange. I woke up and I was immediately wide awake.
0: Okay, um, so talk, talk us through that then. What do you mean?
1: <laughs> one, of the, um, the, 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 one of the risks of, um, of the operation, if it didn't go perfectly, was just because of the location of the, um, the tumour. It was close to uh, the optic nerve. Yeah, and so one of the, one, the percentage-wise, the most likely um, bad outcome would be uh, damage to my eyesight, where I wouldn't be able to see in the top um, outside quadrant of my eyes. Mm. If if that happened, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to drive. It'd be difficult to to ride a bike, uh, that sort of thing. And the very first thing I did when I woke up was I. I looked up and I could see (laughs) you know I had I had that peripheral vision and it's like yeah it worked (laughs) so immediately I was (laughs) I was like wow if that worked what else has worked
0: yeah what the powers have we got
1: now (laughs) (laughs) and I felt fantastic did you I felt absolutely absolutely buzzing. one of the the first um first thing someone said to me when I came round that I remember I'm sure maybe they said uh, I'm sure I'm sure other things uh, other questions were asked but a nurse asked me was there someone waiting to see me yeah and I said yes my my wife is is in reception and uh and the nurse said well, what does she look like and uh, <laughs> I still I still don't think I got sufficient credit for this, and it was just the first thing that came into my head. I said, "She's she's um, she's quite small. She's very pretty, and she's got really good hair." Brilliant. She's obviously what I what I think. <laughs>
0: I mean, I mean, I've met her. She, she's got great hair.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Although she does say they came out and uh, I didn't spot her, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: but they found her right they did find her she i think she may even have come in not not into the theater but in the post post operative room is that
0: yeah in the icu
1: yeah and um she it's a, it's a little blurry at that point but apparently i was just chatting away talking rubbish couldn't show me up um and then i did get quite a bad headache and i was just quite looking forward to to getting some some morphine.
0: <laughs> so you spent the night in ICU, and then was it the next day that you were taken up to the up to the ward?
1: It was, but um, <laughs> just because it's a, a bit of a silly story, they wheeled me into ICU, and um, I wasn't expecting this. And they asked me what I wanted to eat, and I ordered roast chicken and potatoes. And roast potatoes and and carrots and cauliflower and and crumble and custard. I was absolutely starving. Um, so it was really? one of the you know after I realised I could see and I wasn't dead. Yeah. the Next thing in my mind. What am I going Really <laughs> hungry.
0: I mean, basic human needs, right? What's my absolutely. food? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> finish it all? Well, I did, but um, what I hadn't factored in is that they had cut through some of the muscles on the on my jaw Mm. and I couldn't open my mouth it was really painful to open my mouth and I could only open it a little bit and so getting the food into my mouth just hurt but I I persevered once got it in I could chew so (laughs) that was the
0: soup might have been a better option
1: Or flat food, pizza would have yep. been would have been great. Something you just post in.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I've got visions of you just chomping on this chicken, trying to
1: get through it. <laughs> Limited jaw. It's just made me laugh. It was just you know ridiculous that <laughs> I just had eight hours of brain surgery and I was complaining about uh, struggling <laughs> to chew. <laughs>
0: That's brilliant. <laughs> so. Then up to up to the ward. Um, obviously, you'd seen your wife already. Had you seen your children at this point?
1: Um, I think so.
0: Yeah.
1: I think so. My my son my son came in, um, and my wife uh, told me she was going to take some photographs of me to remember what was going what was going on. So in the in the part, in the future um i'd have a a record of what was what was going on so every day she was she was taking photographs Mm. um which was interesting when she was right it was interesting later (laughs) when i saw them
0: yeah
1: um so i had a very very uncomfortable night in icu uh, because you've got so many wires and drains in you and it's just getting comfortable is hard. You can't lie on your side. You've got to lie on your back. And then every time you get comfortable and start to fall asleep, someone comes in and takes your blood pressure <laughs> and your temperature. They take your temperature to see whether you've got, uh, whether you picked up an infection. Mm. Um, but that just, just wakes, wakes you up. And I was so tired the next morning. I couldn't wait to, to get up to, um, to the ward and um at that point my daughter arrived mm. she'd come by herself and so it was so lovely to see her
0: oh i bet it was i bet it was
1: oh but uh, <laughs> this is another silly story um um someone i don't know very well a friend of my wife's blagged her way into icu She'd, she was, she was one of the first people to see me in ICU. She just confidently said she'd come to see me, and they just, oh, okay, show her in. Wow.
0: She managed to get through.
1: She did, straight <laughs> through.
0: <laughs> I bet mean, that was a surprise.
1: Well, it was a big surprise when I heard about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember
1: it? I don't remember. I wish I, could, I wish I could remember that. That yeah. would have been a very bizarre. <laughs>
0: It would, wouldn't it?
1: Because I didn't know this person very well either. Oh, I've dinner with them a couple of times.
0: Yeah, I mean, it might freak you out a bit, to be honest. You
1: had to remember
0: that. So the the days that the first few days, having gone through this, what is you know a, a hugely traumatic experience on the brain? Um, how how did you feel physically and emotionally?
1: Um, I was on a emotionally, I was on a real high. I had, you know, I, I seemed to have dodged the bullets. Mm. Saying so my eyesight uh, was 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 fine. Um, I felt absolutely great. I felt so wide awake, and um, my brain seemed to be functioning so much faster that I was thinking of things and I was I was chatting away, just couldn't couldn't, couldn't people couldn't shut me up <laughs> so, <laughs> I was so so happy um, but the the only problem was I was incredibly tired it's really hard to get comfortable um, I had a drain in my in my head um, and the, the, you just I just couldn't get comfortable in bed um, so I was I was very glad when they started taking off. The uh, various bits of a kit that were attached to me that made it easier to move around. And the day after my operation, um, uh, it doesn't sound like a very big step, but I um, I got up and went to the loo.
0: Mm, Amazing.
1: Which, which you know, you did. I I got up and um, I walked walked there myself. Which I'm not sure what I was expecting how how capable i would be um but you know, it was something straight away that i could yeah. i could do
0: do you remember how long you were in hospital for a-
1: about a week
0: mm. yeah when you left what sort of stage physically were you at were you able to walk out of the hospital um did you still have a bandage on your head what was going on physically at that point after a week
1: Um, I had uh, a large, um, uh, a lot of padding on the, on on the side of my head. It looked a bit like a sanitary towel, I think. (laughs) Um, And I, I was very keen to, to, to go back on public transport, actually. I, I quite wanted to walk across Green Park and take the, the tune again. My, <laughs> <laughs> My wife said, don't be ridiculous. And she, uh, she we got a taxi.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then we got home and I was sent straight to bed, um, which is where I stayed for another couple of weeks, sleeping a lot of the time. Sure.
0: What was the first moment that you thought this has worked? The epilepsy has
1: gone one of the conversations i had with the surgeons was um how would they know it it worked and uh it was a question of waiting uh, but if the surgery worked it worked straight away mm. so as soon as they took that the the dnt out if that was the cause of the problem I was fixed, but I would have to wait um, uh, 12 months to be certain that it had worked. Um, And the reason for that was that you can have a seizure just from the trauma of brain surgery. Even if the operation has worked, you can still have a seizure as your brain just recovers. Yeah. Um, So I felt that it had worked. I was absolutely confident, confident that it had worked. When I was um, when I was in ICU, I felt so so great, uh, so wide awake that I was immediately convinced that the that I was cured, that this, that the that was that was the end of it for me, that the seizures had ended. Um, but I still had to take the medication.
0: Of course, <laughs> of course. And so, how have you been since having the surgery? With the epilepsy,
1: I was on a real high immediately after the surgery, and that went on for for several months. And um, I wasn't having any auras. I've been but immediately before the surgery. I was having multiple in the months leading up to the surgery. I was having um, auras uh, very very regularly, several a day, and they had just completely stopped which again made me more convinced that the the surgery had worked because there had been just a constant thing that was was going on and that they'd stopped plus i was thinking so much more clearly even though i was taking a very large dose of of medication Mm. so i was truly convinced straight away that it had worked
0: I suppose it's interesting, isn't it, you describe that elation you feel after the operation. Um, I wonder how much of that is, you know, the belief that something that you've carried with you for so long has now potentially gone.
1: Yeah. And there's also something that that you told me that the surgeons had mentioned, uh, that... uh that there's a theory that having um, cold air on your brain. (laughs) So, uh, which is, I I suddenly realised after you told me this, um, that um, it's something that's talked about in his Dark Materials. Trepanning.
0: Mm, Trepanning, yes, it's a thing. We definitely wouldn't recommend this to anyone listening there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) All sorts of theories. I think it's really interesting, though, how you you just sense that there was a different feeling. It sounds like that you had after the surgery, a sense that, you know, it had gone and it, you know, we know with epilepsy, it does dull down your brain, doesn't it? It does make us a little bit slower, um, a little bit yeah. more tired. And it, it sounds very much like that feeling had gone almost instantly.
1: Yes. Well, after I was having a lot of auras and after I had an aura, um, I was very tired. And then suddenly I wasn't having auras. So the, the, that, that, that as a cause of tiredness had had ended. Mm. Um, I still did feel very tired, but it was a different type different of time. tiredness.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so you're what, nine, eight, nine months on from your surgery back in January. Have you had any seizures since?
1: I had um, one seizure in um, in June, that was um, was a big surprise. Um, that was that was quite difficult because I was so convinced that I was fixed, and then to suddenly have a seizure. Um, but I got in touch with um, uh, my neurologist, and I I think. Um, I was so convinced that I was fixed, I was being less sensible than I should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't, um, I, the, the phrase, I just felt I was bulletproof. So um, I'd, uh, I'd been out, I'd got tired. Um, I uh, had forgotten to take my medication on time. So I took it much later than I, sh- than I usually do and um also i'd gone back to to exercising and i was training quite hard and the 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 neurologist said this is probably caused by um the trauma of the of the surgery um and uh, triggered by uh you know not being uh by not taking the medication on time and just push pushing myself too hard Uh, so don't worry about it now we wait for 12 months before we give a prognosis so but that does it still does affect your your i was on such a high until that point and then it was it was hard um immediately afterwards the you know that feeling of total elation yeah remember Disappeared <laughs> quite quickly, yeah. Um, and then it took a while for you know for uh, uh, my mood to to lift again.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. It makes total sense what they say because I think we come out of brain surgery, in your words, and we feel almost bulletproof, and we want to. We just want to live, don't we? Just live our lives and, and and squeeze every ounce of it out. And to have a setback like that, of course, is going to knock you, but it kind of makes sense that it's trauma related rather than epilepsy, but lessons, Mm. I suppose, in taking it easy, slowing down and just giving your body and your mind that time to heal.
1: Yes. I mean, in, in retrospect, um, I should have been more patient in, in taking the time to get better, which was the advice that I've been given. Um, I should have, slept more I should have um uh, not exercised quite so hard and just got on I should just have taken longer to recover
0: would that be the advice you'd give to other people that are potentially going through this
1: absolutely and another thing I was told this but I didn't really take it on board that um the recovery isn't linear it's not just a straight line of, of getting better the whole way. It can go up and down. And the, the the setback I had in June was something that was always a possibility. And I think if I had been more aware of that and really thought about it in advance, that it would have been easier to accept at the time that it happened. Mm. Um, so I think, um something to be aware of is that there may be setbacks, but they theres they are things to be to be prepared for, but they don't mean necessarily that the surgery hasn't worked. No, quite. They're just mentally pre- if I should I think I, I, I could have been more mentally prepared for that for those setbacks for a setback, and then it would have been easier to to accept and, and deal with
0: yeah of course i mean it's it's great isn't it having a a positive mental attitude towards well these things these massive things of course it is but sometimes it doesn't allow much space for reality or the reality of what might happen to to take a part in that
1: yeah after i had this this setback i didn't really talk about it with with anyone i wanted i talked about it with my with um my family and immediate family and friends you uh but it's actually when i first spoke to you first spoke with you that that made a a huge difference talking to someone who'd been through the same um through the same process really really helped so that's that's another another piece of advice (laughs) would be to to speak to other people who've been through the same experience um i'm not someone who who usually feels comfortable talking about myself Mm. um but it did really help speaking with you so thank you very much
0: it's a pleasure it's you know the main reason why i set brain buddy up really to to you know create that safe space for people to connect because it's a very lonely process and it's a very unique process going through brain surgery not many people do it so I think there's definitely value in speaking to people who have because, you know, you can get some great advice. And...
1: At the uh, presentation, I think um, Professor Duncan said there was only somewhere like 3,000 people that had, had this particular type of surgery
0: mm-hmm. in the
1: last yeah. decade or so. Which I was amazed it was such a small number of people.
0: Yeah, it is. It's tiny. Uh, we're quite a unique club aren't we (laughs)
1: we
0: need badges or something I think tattoos maybe (laughs) is there anything else you'd like to say to people who are about to embark on this journey or have just embarked on this journey
1: a few few things firstly really come to terms with your decision Uh, so you're comfortable with it and For me, um, there were two parts to that, which was, which was choosing for me to have the operation, which was easy because I, I felt I didn't have any, um, I didn't have an alternative, but also talking to, um, my immediate family to get them comfortable with the, with the idea and getting them involved in it. So, um, I wasn't sure how my, my children were going to take it and uh, when I explained the, the risk to them and I think it was my son, um, when I, <laughs> he told me that if I was going to have a stroke, the best place to have a stroke was whilst I was in hospital,
0: yeah.
1: in a theatre, <laughs> uh, when there'd be people there to deal with it. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Um, so he was, <laughs> That was a great piece of advice from him. Also, order flat food for your first meal. <laughs> not
0: chicken. <tricky. laughs>
1: and also, don't get excited about morphine. Having having not had anything to drink for sixteen years, I was actually looking forward. <laughs> uh, I was looking forward to getting uh, um, <laughs> to getting morphine, but the, the the type I had it was not as advertised. It's, I thought I thought you'd I thought from from watching films you'd have morphine and you'd just feel fantastic, but uh, the, the, whatever I had it uh, it wasn't the good stuff, and it also has this terrible side effect which they hadn't warned me about, um, which is morphine makes you incredibly constipated, mm. um, and uh, when you've had brain surgery you can't try very hard. And you're not allowed out of hospital until you've been. So you're desperate to get out, but you can't. Um, So uh, in advance of surgery and immediately afterwards, eat a lot of fiber. Um, And then also be prepared for for ups and downs. Um, Don't rush your recovery, uh, which I think I I, I probably did in retrospect. take it easy, listen to, listen to what the doctors, what the doctors say, they've been doing this for quite a long time, they know what they're talking about.
0: Amazing. Well, listen Chris, you've been great, you've been absolutely great, you've told your story so articulately and, and just so well in terms of covering off every aspect I think that people will really would really like to know and benefit from, so a huge thank you from me. <clears throat>
1: Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for originally getting in touch with me. You're the first person um, had been through the same experience as me and it really helped me talking to you. It's, It's a pleasure.
0: Oh, it was so nice to chat with Chris during that talk. Um, I hope that you all found it really valuable. I know that I did. um, So thank you to Chris again for joining us on with you in mind. And for all of you as well for joining us. If you would like to keep updated on all of our latest podcasts, then please do give us a follow on our Instagram and Facebook social media accounts where you will find all of the upcoming talks, webinars and events that are happening. Thank you and see you next time.